Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we have said a lot in this series so far. If you haven't been with us, we've been in a series called Ruined to Renovation. Um, and it's a spiritual formation series. And uh, we have these uh, binders that we have over there. If you want to take one for free. And every week we do it. Uh, uh, print out the, the questions after the sermon on a Monday and put those in our binders and use those for our quiet times. We're also using them in our uh, community groups and things like that. So if you want to take one of those and join in with that, that'd be great. We're also urging people to read Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart, uh, since a lot of these principles and everything is kind of coming out of this. And there's also a daily practice uh, book that is, accompanies that. So it's all, it's all been good. My teacher wife is very out of me that I'm hitting on all cylinders, getting all the little teacher things in, in place with these sermons. So um, I'm, I'm really enjoying myself. Uh, so, but we've, we have said a lot in this, ser- this series so far, and some of it, which, like I said last week, may feel a little bit redundant. And, uh, but just as one drop does not soak a sponge, uh, you know, uh, redundancy is a helpful teaching tool. It is something that we need. It's, we need quite a bit poured into us over and over and over again until we're soaked with God's truth. And um, we've talked a lot about the heart. I don't want to overkill that word heart, but it is a, an important thing that we need to be talking about. Um, and we've talked about how we can't get caught in that thicket uh, of the outward behavior of a person, um, but in witness and in our own personal lives, we shoot for applying Jesus uh, and, and the Word of God to the heart, to the heart of ourselves, to the heart of other people. And we want to avoid being uh, moralistic or legalistic peoples, and rather we want to look for true, deep, spiritual change and ongoing transformation of our soul, Romans 12, 1 and 2, things like that. Um, Since we know uh, that Jesus changes a person at the core of their being, uh, and he's the only one that can do that, right? And in addition to the benefit of having eternal life, which we don't want to remember, mom, dad, you're late. I just want to tell you. (laughs) Starts at 9.30. No. (laughs) That is my parents. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, in addition to that benefit of having, gaining eternal life in, the, in, in this relationship with Jesus, it does lead to a healthy outward life and uh, a, a betterment in community. We make better societies, better communities. And as the week has shown us, we need that in this world, don't we? This was illustrated for us in this worldview model, which... Um, We've used quite often, it's been helpful to understand our, our thoughts a little bit in this area. And then last week, we looked at Dallas Willard, uh, what Dallas Willard said of human nature, and that it's made up of six essential aspects. Uh, number one, uh, the thought of a person. In other words, the images or the concepts that come to mind, the judgments, the reasoning, and the conclusions that we make in our, in our thought processes. Uh, it, it has to do with our feelings. That's another aspect, uh, the sensations we have, the emotions we have. Uh, it has to do with choice. In other words, our will and the decision we make and how that is revealed in our character and the choices that we make in life. Uh, our bodies and our uh, sort of actions and interactions with the physical world around us and, and our social context. 
which is our personal and structural relationships with others and things like that. And then the soul, which is the factor that integrates all of the above to form uh, one life. All right? So it's like the thing that binds it all together. And we said, excuse me, <coughs> we said that uh, the ideas, ideal spiritual life uh, is one in which all of these things, these six things of human nature are ordered around God and that they are being restored, they are being renewed, and they are being sustained by Him, right? And that so spiritual, spiritual formation is the process leading to that end. And the, and, and the end result is to love God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength and also to love your neighbor as yourself as we saw in Luke chapter 10 last week. So we want to be that person that is fully integrated under God, right? Fully integrated under God, actively residing under his grace, operating out of it, living out of it, day in and day out, right? Since we are convinced that Jesus is not only the hope for ourselves, but we are convinced, and this is not an arrogant statement, it is a loving statement, that he is the answer for everybody in the world. He is the hope for the world, right? So we see in this diagram uh, here uh, the, that the Word and the Spirit of Christ enters into our lives and it permeates every aspect of this being, of our being, and, and it enlivens our spirit. Ephesians chapter 2 says we were made alive by God's Spirit, right? That the, and this in turn evokes, uh, in, uh, evokes faith in us, uh, which, uh, which reestablishes communion with God, as it says in 1 Peter one uh, twenty one it says, through him you believe in God, talking about Jesus through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God, right? So it's all good stuff. And we can also apply this, uh, world, this, this stuff to the worldview model as well, knowing the heart is changed at the worldview level, and it begins to enact change outwardly uh, and including the behavioral and the artifact le- levels on the outside of us, you know, what, you know the, the things that everybody sees about us, right? And uh, which is why we've said that we don't want to get caught up into this thicket of the outward behavior of a person when it relates to their standing with Jesus, eventually, because we know that when Jesus changes the heart, eventually everything about us will change. Our, our behavior will change. What we do with our money will change. What we do with our decisions about things will change. Um, Jesus changes the whole person. Now, I remember as a boy, uh, at times my friend would sit at the bottom of the hill as I rode my bike down the hill with a stick in his hand. And uh, as I rode past him, he would try desperately to jam that stick in my, my, uh, my spokes, effectively stopping my bike on a dime and sending me hurling through the air. And uh, these are things that boys do to their friends and this is not things that girls do to their friends. I don't think so, at least. But that's what I'm going to do to you this morning. I'm going to stick a stick in your spokes. Because after, you know, having this nice leisurely ride down Heart Lane, right, and, and saying, you know, like we don't get, want to get caught up in the stick of behavior and all that kind of stuff, uh, we may end up thinking the behavior is not that important. Or we can just overlook things and stuff like that, right? But it, it is important. It is actually very important, and we've said that, but I'm not sure that we've said it loudly enough, right, because it is an important thing. 
Scripture is clear on this fact, and, and, and the stick I'm going to shove into your spokes this morning is found in 1 John 3, 7 through 10. However, this is not the only stick that I could stick in your spokes. There are plenty in Scripture in, that talk about this stuff. But in that passage, it says this, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right, talking about behavior, right? The one who is done, does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one is born of God who will... No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who, are, who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So, we've agreed a little arrogant of me to say that because I've said it you're supposed to agree Um, but for argument's sake we've agreed uh, not to be too concerned about the outward behavior when it talks about applying the gospel to our hearts and to people but this passage seems to place our thoughts right back upon that outward circle or that one of those outward circles of, of behavior right since doing or not doing right can only be seen are judged by outward behavior or outward words or outward actions, right? And these are the passages that give us pause. They kind of spook us a little bit, right? Uh, We read this, and what's the first concern? The first concern is verse 9. That if, if I'm a Christian, does that mean that I have to be perfect? And if I'm not perfect... Does that mean I'm not a Christian? Right? If you really are a thinking person, those are the questions you start asking yourself. And I don't know about you, but I'm not perfect. I'm really not. I I can pinpoint times in my past week when my attitude or my behavior were somewhere in the range of questionable at best uh, to outright sinful at worst. Right? Verse 7 to me is the key. Verse 7 says, don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anyone lead you astray. The constant warning to our waywardly prone hearts, which get caught so easily in the ebb and flow of cultural think out there, right? We get caught up in all these things. In this day and age, uh, the current... uh, philosophy out there is, like we said last week, it is that there is no base human nature, that we're all just animalistic, that we're all just animals, right? There is no human nature, there's no original inherent sin in all of us, that, and this human, humanistic sort of philosophy that we said last week influences the church, and it, it influences the church at As it does, it translates to a loose theology of sin or a loose outlook on sin and human depravity. And it denies the darkness within us for which Christ died and rose from the grave. And I could prove that point by saying we could go out in America right now 
And we could ask the question across the board to people that don't go to church, that aren't Christians. And we could say, is, is pulling the trigger on an AR-15 in a school to kill people a sin? Most people would not say it is. They would agree it's a horrific thing. But they would say it's mental illness. It's not a sin. The Christian says it's a sin. Right? The, the, the prevailing thought out there is that sin does not exist. Right? And people would have a struggle. They would, you would ask them that question. And they would want to, because they would feel trapped. They would want to say, yes, it is a sin. But in another sense, they would say, uh, it's, well, let's be honest. It's really mental illness. Right? And, and things like that. So we've got to think hard about this stuff. There is a a wave out there to erase that concept of human depravity and sin. Um, Grace and mercy, therefore, in the church, when this infiltrates the church, preach strongly, very, very strongly, overly strongly, and, uh, but sin and depravity are mentioned only in passing, if at all, right? They're, the balance, it goes out of balance. And we're left with Christians who loosely wear the clothing of religion, but aren't changed from the inside out. They look somewhat healthy, but they're inwardly riddled with disease, right? Whitewashed tombs, like we talked about last week, a belief in the twisted truth, which is no longer really truth anymore, but a lie in disguise. So theology is important. We don't like to admit that, but it is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've ever read him, called this cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, published in 1937. I like that it was published so long ago. It's like the guy was really smart back then. It's like, you know, you always think, well, we've progressed. No, these guys were smart back then, right? And he says, the pre- so he defines cheap grace as the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. In other words, oh, I forgive you, but you don't have to change. You don't have to turn. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, without following, right, and obedience, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. That's a great definition. And it's cheap since the emphasis is on the benefits of Christianity without the cost involved, right? It's the opposite of legalism, you might think, although it's become a liberal legalism in and of itself. Carnality has been implemented as a rule under the guise of freedom or under the guise of grace. It's the staying on the throne of your own life while claiming all the goodies of Jesus' community, right? It's eating the icing off the top of the gospel cake so to speak. It's tolerant, it's accepting of bad, sinful behavior, and in the circles where it is preached, it is not to be challenged, which makes it legalistic because for them, it is the rule to live by. Going into, go into a universalistic church and say that Jesus is, uh, talk, start talking about sin, oh my goodness. You'll be running on a rail pretty quickly. 
There are whole religious denominational systems out there right now living and promoting cheap grace, and that is the salvation of Jesus without the lordship of Jesus. But in every church, there also are those individuals who live this cheap grace out quietly themselves, from the guy coming on Sundays just to troll for women, to the nice soccer mom sitting next to you in the pew, uh, going to church just to find friendships, but has no intention of allowing Jesus to challenge her heart and how she's loving her neighbors. From the couple who will allow Jesus into their life as far as the door to the bank, but not beyond, because for them, Jesus has no business in their private dealings of finances. To the guy or the girl living privately in sexual immorality given to them, Jesus has no right to make demands in such private matters. If you know me, you know people have asked me to do their weddings at times and I have, a couple of them have been living together and I've made them move out. It's that important. Sin is, a, there, there are standards. Yes, we don't get caught up in the thicket of behavior, but there are standards that speak of holiness and purity and the gospel that we're responsible to live by in this world as Christians. In the 80s and 90s, there was a ruckus in the theological world uh, revolving around that term carnal Christian, Right? And it centered around the fact that some people were teaching that basically that you could profess Jesus and that was enough. All you got to do is profess Jesus and then you're saved. But that there didn't have to be a life change, right? It was a teaching that the call to salvation doesn't also necessarily include a call to repentance and a call to holy living at the same time. You know, you got to respect the person that tries to at least hide their sin because they know that it's not right, right? I mean, the people that like live openly, I mean, that's how arrogant that is before the Lord, right? I'd rather catch you in it, you know? I'd rather you confess it first, but I'd rather catch you in it than have you just come into church and just living openly, you know, proclaiming Jesus but living openly in sin. It doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't jive with what we say we are. Some in that camp back in the 80s and 90s may have taught that salvation was follow, wasn't followed, or may, they may have taught that salvation was followed by sanctification, and sanctification meaning the transforming work of Christ, being changed, right? But that they, 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 would taught, they would have taught that they were two totally different things, separate things, that there can be a call to salvation without a call to discipleship, without a call to obedience and following Jesus, right? But Scripture clearly teaches you can't have Jesus as Savior without acknowledging Jesus as Lord in your life. Jesus himself said in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord? We use the language, right? And you don't do what I tell you. It's a good question. The salvation and the lordship of Jesus are inseparable. 
They go hand in hand. There must be life change in the Christian life. There must be repentance. There must be a start of transformation from the moment of salvation or it's cheap grace, which isn't grace at all. It's a facsimile thereof. Discipleship, which just means obedience and following, right? is a call to follow in holiness and repentance and allowing Jesus to control every aspect of our lives, all those six aspects, emulating him as best we're able to in our reliance on his grace. You know, the word Savior is used 24 times in the New Testament where the word Lord is used 667 times in reference to God the Father or the person of Jesus Christ. And that's not to downplay Jesus' role as Savior, but it is to point out this, uh, that this idea of lordship is of utmost importance in our relationship to Jesus. He is Lord of everything that I am. So any serious discussion of spiritual formation, which is a very popular term these days, must address the whole person under the lordship of Christ. Outward behavior does reveal something about the inner heart. Sometimes that outward behavior is so blatant and so consistent that we know there's been no heart change in a person, right? Christ isn't Lord of that person, it doesn't seem, right? Other times it's not so clear. And, at time, and time will tell if fruit occurs, if at all, right, in a person's life. And this is where personality types come into play. Some of you are very amiable people. But amiability does not a Christian make. Right? You can be really, really, really nice people, but it doesn't make you a Christian. The truth is, Someone can come to church, they can, they can spend their whole life doing this stuff, they can be very involved in all of this stuff, look, they can look very good on the outside, but they still may not know Jesus in any intimate, saving way. The real question for ourselves are, do we love God with the whole self, allowing Him to transform every aspect of our being, of ourselves, of our nature, and also, do we take that and love others as well? Is true faith in us revealed in a 360-degree devotion to holiness and holistic spiritual formation in Christ? So when the writer says, the one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous, it's reminiscent of Matthew chapter 7 where he says, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. But their fruit you will by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Yikes. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Does it help when I, if I smile when I read that? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It helps a little bit when you smile, you laugh. Now, these two passages 
speak in the same voice, don't they? They really do. Once a person's heart's changed by the incoming of Christ, something has happened to them. The old is gone, the new has come. The, the residual effects of sin are, may still be there in some way, shape, or form in the members of our body, our natural reactions to life, our motorized responses to outward stimuli. Remember, we talked about last week, the alcoholic, whenever he saw a drink in old movies, he'd be like, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a physical response to our sinful patterns in our lives. Things are ingrained in us, Right? But something, if Christ has come into your heart, something has come about in the middle of us, in the very core of us. The spirit, the heart, the will has come alive in Christ. He has made it alive, right? And over time, that will bleed out to change all else about us. If not, if this Jesus thing has just been a social experiment for us, if I've said, well, I should go to church and try it out, right? If it's been a behavioral modification thing, you know, us pastors hate people that say, well, I'd like, I decided to come back to church after I had kids because they need some religion in their lives. What? Nobody needs religion in their lives. We need Jesus in our hearts. Right? So if this is just behavioral modification for us, then we will be shown for what we truly are eventually, a bad tree which can't bear good fruit. And this is all shown over time. Maybe at the very end of the days when Jesus comes back, I don't know. So when you read this, you've got to remember that this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Very important to understand that. In other words, we don't read this and say, wow, I better start producing good fruit or Jesus is going to cut me down and throw me into the fire as if it was up to me to be able to produce something that's not naturally produced in me. Instead, if we are in Christ, what we say is, thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you have redeemed me, that you have regenerated my heart to be able to produce fruit in glorification of your name. Amen, right? And we participate with him in that process, in that truth. And so when a person comes to Christ, there are things which change in them in a flash sometimes, right? If they were drastic personalities, which I was, in certain ways before Jesus, right? If they're a drastic, you know, extreme personality in some ways, those around them might be typically overjoyed at some major changes that happen overnight in the character of a person who just comes to know Jesus, right? They're like, wow, they changed. Wow, you know? Other things linger, right? We have our struggles. They're ingrained in our flesh. Paul says, don't, you know, don't deny that you have sin in your life. They're ingrained in our flesh as God is working those things out in us over time. Right? Human nature, as we've seen, is a very complicated thing. It's a complicated system of interrelated aspects from thought to feeling to social context to the body to the mind to everything. And it takes time to change a person. If you want to read a good book, Read uh, How People Change by, anybody read it? Paul Tripp, thank you. Uh, How People Change. Very heady read, but it's a really good book. And it talks about this process of changing in Christ. 
There are mistakes and setbacks along the way which are confronted and worked out with grace and mercy in the context of Christian community. And part of the good fruit that is produced in us is the fruit of integrity, which we talked about last week and the week before, where we don't end up hiding our need and our weakness any longer, but we become open, honest repenters, right? We confess. We become open, honest repenters of our sinful mistakes and our sinful choices. So integrity isn't trying to look perfect when you're not actually perfect. It's it's the pursuit of strong morality or strong moral principles in open honesty of not being able to reach them all the time, of not being perfect. Having said all that, let's bring that passage back up once more. I'm not going to read it again. Uh... But let's take the sting out of this while still allowing God to have the bite that he needs in our heart, right? Verse 7, the one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous, right? Remember, what is righteousness? Think about this. Righteousness is defined as being rightly related to God once more, right? Rightly related to God once more. It's not about your perfection, your perfect record. It's about Christ's perfection. How does Scripture define our being rightly related to God or our gaining of righteousness? Righteousness sounds like such an arrogant term, doesn't it? Well, he's righteous. No, it's not. It's just being rightly related with God. How do we get that? Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In other words, it's given. It's shown, right? It's being revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And we know... That faith itself is a gift. Scripture tells us that. Righteousness is also this gift from God. Romans chapter 3 and 4 also speak about this righteousness being credited to us. In other words, given to us, imputed to us, or, or laid upon us, or given to us by the way of Christ, by what he's done. Philippians 3.9 speaks of not having a righteousness of our own, which comes from the law in other words, all the, doing all the right things, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, Christ's righteousness is laid upon us. It has nothing to do with our performance. Rather, it's based on the perfect record and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But it is important what we do with it after we come to know Jesus. So in verse 7 is descriptive, not prescriptive. When we give ourselves to Jesus, we are covered by his righteousness, which means our old self-righteousness, our old self is crucified with him. It's dead and gone. He has free reign. He has lordship over our lives. and and, and, And part of his purpose in this whole relationship is to destroy the works of Satan in us completely, absolutely, 100%, 110%, those works are completely paid for in Christ already. They're covered already. And completely, they will be changed over time, the residual effects of these things. And as we continue on to verse 9, we see that as a result of that movement, it's a natural progression that those of us who are born again, which Jesus told 
uh, told us in John chapter 3 that we must be born again, will naturally move from a sinful life to a holy life. Because we've been born again, right? We've been born again. The, the seed of God has been planted in our hearts at the core of our being, and it grows outwardly to overtake all that we are. Some things change immediately. Some things slowly over time. Some things are easily given up since they aren't so ingrained in us as other things are. And that's the easy part. It's like the surgeon cutting away the cancer, so to speak, in our lives. It's like the Holy Spirit going through our spiritual house. Like if we thought of our lives as a spiritual house where we've lived as hoarders, right? And it's just a mess in here, right? And the first thing he cleans up is all the paper trash, the easily moved items, the moved things, right? And then he moves on to the bigger, more involved items, old couches and broken toilets which need replacing and and redoing floorboards and door jams and cracked windows and replacing all this stuff in our spiritual house, right? Jesus just does this work over time in us. And he does this process slowly in us since it may be overwhelming for us to do it all at once. And some things in our lives are just a little bit more difficult to see changed given that they've been so deeply ingrained in our social context or our muscle memory or our bodily functions or our thought patterns or our feelings or our choices or our patterns or our habits. Remember, it takes 21 days to change a habit and that's by sheer willpower alone. God is patient though and God is kind and he's thorough in his renovation of our hearts, but he is renovating our hearts, which is changing all of us. And this is where spiritual formation comes into play. This is where we get to engage with God in this whole process. And that's what we've been talking about. And if we ignore it, if we just kind of go through life and we don't participate, we only prolong the change and make life more difficult for ourselves and more difficult for others. You know, we can argue all kinds of things out there in the political realm, but to make a peaceful world, is the best thing you can do is make a peaceful person. So if you, each one of you, engages with Jesus so strongly that your heart has changed, that you are influencing others in that way, that is going to change the world. You may never see that change. You may never see it, but who cares? Who cares? That's God's business. What he does through you, through your life, is his business. But it's the way that we change the world. We get so distracted by everything out there. We get so distracted. Let's engage with Jesus and let's change the world, right? If we willingly give Jesus the reign, participating with him in our own transformation, things go much more smoothly for us. And we find joy and we find freedom coming into life. And most importantly, Christ is glorified in us, right? So it may be helpful for us to imagine ourselves going through our spiritual house with the Holy Spirit uh, talking about you know, what he needs to throw out next or what needs to be repaired or what needs a coat of paint and all that kind of stuff. It's like investing wisely over the years 
When you're young, you know, you work and you work and you work and you do all you can to make money and to save money. And it seems so small and it seems so trivial and it seems so incremental along the way. $25 here and $10 there and $50 there. And oh my gosh, you know, like how am I ever really going to get ahead and all that kind of stuff. But as time goes on, you invest little by little by little and your money begins to make money through compounding interest and you begin to find freedom and you, 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 you start to spread your wings. And at 50 years old, you're not worrying about spending something, money on something that you want when you did when you were 30 as you did when, you know, when you were younger. You couldn't spend that money then, but now you can. Spiritual formation works in the same way. Putting the work in brings about a harvest of righteousness, freedom and joy over time, and we get to walk with Jesus, and we get to be useful in his kingdom, and we get to be fully participating in it, and that's cool. So don't be led astray. Salvation in Christ comes with the lordship of Christ attached to it. It means obedient discipleship. It means walking it out with Jesus. You're 100% his. He will destroy the work of Satan in your life. As it says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He is working in you. He is working in you. Now how how quickly and how smoothly that process goes sometimes depends on our obedience. And I don't know why God chose to work that way, but he did. He's like the Genesis device in Star Trek. Remember that? What was the Wrath of Khan back in like 1980s or 90s or something like that? Who's a, who's a Trekkie? Is Joe here? Yeah. Well, you guys are Trekkies. Yeah, see, and, and I don't know if you know that, but they shoot this I don't know, it's like a pod and they shoot it at a dead star and once it hits, it explodes and then it just overtakes this dead star and it makes a living, breathing planet where people can live and plants and animals can live and, and it's just like this beautiful, like Eden-like place, right? And that's why it's called the Genesis uh, uh, device. And that's what Jesus is like in our, in our lives. He fires the gospel into our hearts and it just starts to overtake us, right? In every little aspect. And he will work even when you don't. But he invites your participation into it, right? In Christ, you're the good tree, unable to produce bad fruit, not because you're righteous in and of yourself, but due to Christ's work in you. That is why, right? Since he has imputed his righteousness upon you. It's not about your perfection, but it's about his perfect record. The, you know, through God's seed growing in you, within you, you'll be unable to continue. Things will lose their taste. You will be unable to live in destructive ways forever. You just won't. He's leading you into holiness. I'm going to be 51 this month, and I can, I can attest to you, and this is why you need leaders. We, we need to be able to say, I've lived this, and it's worked. I have lived it, and it is working. It's always worked. God has changed me. I remember one time I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing and somebody said to me, is, you know, are, are these people asking you to stop that or is God asking you to stop it? That, was, that question hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, I think God's telling me. And I stopped. He will hound you because he loves you, right? He will change you. I want to end this today 
by doing a, an imaginative prayer exercise. I want us to go to prayer, and I'm just going to kind of lead us through imagining what Jesus is doing in our spiritual house. Uh, let's take a few minutes to do that. Why don't you close your eyes with me? Holy Spirit, we invite you right now in, into the inner sanctum of our hearts, the inner sanctum of our minds, the inner sanctum of our thoughts, of all that we are. We think about that throne image last week, and we ask that you would walk into that throne room of our hearts, and you would walk up the steps, and you would seat yourself on the throne of our lives. That you would take hold of your scepter, that we would see your smile, and that we would hear your voice, and that we would respond. And I pray that every single person that can hear my voice right now, including myself, that in the heart of hearts, in all of our heart of hearts, that we would bow before you, that we would get on our knees and we would prostrate ourselves before you, not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord. We imagine you getting off off that throne and taking us by the hand and walking through every room in our house. Some of those rooms may be clean. Some of those rooms may be orderly. Some of those rooms may be shut. The door may be shut and they may not have been open for years. Some of those rooms might just be the room where we just throw things in and close the door that we don't want to have to deal with. Some of those rooms need a desperate cleaning. I ask that you would convict us, each and every one of us, to clean every single room alongside of you, that we would be participant in listening to your voice as you tell us what needs to be thrown out, what needs to be kept, what needs to be dusted, what needs to be put on a shelf, what needs to be flushed down the toilet. We just get that image of walking out to the curb with you, carrying bags of garbage and leaving it there and dusting off our hands and walking back into the house hand in hand with you once more. We ask that you would be Lord over our houses, Lord over our personal domains, that you would be sitting on the throne of life for every single one of us. I want to give you a minute just to think about that. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would heal the hearts of our country. That you would pour cool water on hot emotion. That you would make sense of tragedy and senseless violence in only the way that you can because we can't understand it. We pray that you would bring peace 
And we pray for a revival in this country, a, a turning away from our sin, a turning away from being the, the Lord of our own lives to once again seeking you. And we ask that the church, all local churches, would be convicted of this. And that 6-8 would be fully participant in bringing the gospel back to the streets of this country. Or maybe for the first time, I should say. We pray for your healing power in this country right now.